This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Another Way, the podcast of Equal Citizens. I'm Jason Harrow, the Executive Director and Chief Counsel of Equal Citizens, and I'm pleased to be joined by our Campaigns Manager, Adam Eichen. Hey, Adam. Hey, Jason. How's it going? It's going great. The year is coming to a close. We had a barrage of episodes, and then we took a little break and a little rest. And now we're back with a two-part episode, dear listeners. The two-part episode is first uh, the recap. We kind of want to recap our activities and some of the year in democracy and voting and uh, elections in 2020. And then we want to have some fun. And we're going to bring back a fan favorite from last year, Adam. We're going to bring back the Democracy Awards. Last year, we did the Democracy Awards. Um, Mitch McConnell was a big winner slash loser, though there was also lots to celebrate. Spoiler alert, listeners, in part two, Mitch McConnell is going to return. He has a lot to say about the state of our democracy and and why it persists in not improving as much as it could. But as with last year, the awards show is not all bad. There's a lot of optimism. There was a lot of progress in 2020 and a lot of things to be upset about and call out. And we'll do both in the awards. The awards are sort of a combination of the Oscars and the Razzies they've been described as. So uh, that is still to come. But Adam, let's go for part one. Um, which is the 2020 year in, in review. So where, where should we start? Well, I mean, first, I just want to say, you know, what a year it's been. I mean, it's quite remarkable to think the last time, you know, we were recording this or the year end um, kind of uh, dual episodes. Uh, we were actually together in Los Angeles uh, at the time at the end of or the beginning of December of 2019. And, you know, so, so much has changed since then. And, and as you said, some of it, not so great, um, but there has been some silver linings. Um, and so I, I think we should just start where our head our heads have been uh, for the past month or, or more, Jason, which is the Electoral College. Uh, you know, as our listeners know, we put together a 10-part series. We scrambled to put together the 10-part series of the partisan games that could be played uh, on the back end of the Electoral College. Fortunately, um, many of the worst case scenarios did not come to pass, but not necessarily for lack of effort on the Trump campaign. So, Jason, take us through a little bit about what has happened since voters went to the polls on Election Day. What kind of post-election litigation, partisan games have been played uh, and where do we stand now? Yeah, so I, I think the headline for 2020 in the world of democracy is that the presidential election faced an unprecedented assault, and it withstood it largely. Largely. Not completely, but largely. And we say that because, um, as we know, the president and members of his party and his allies began um, a very long time ago, indeed, once the pandemic started, to lay a real assault on the integrity of mail-in voting in particular and the broader integrity of the elections. Arguably, the assault started even before the pandemic, as Trump was consistently down in the polls and, and indeed had cast uh, doubts about whether he would support the peaceful transition of power if he lost even way back into 2016. But it escalated several orders of magnitude with the pandemic, both because his handling of it uh, meant that his approval rating was very, very unlikely to hit numbers where re-election looked like a good bet. 
and also because uh, we we did have this increase in mail-in voting and lots of litigation and lots of rule changes, which created an environment of uncertainty that he really revels in. So going up into November 3rd, uh, the state of play was that there was a, a lot of worry about what would happen to our creaky old system of selecting the president, which runs in a two-step process where states hold their own elections for their slate of presidential electors. They then canvass the results, appoint a slate of electors, and then on December 14th, the electors themselves vote. And then I guess as step 2B, Congress counts those votes in what is typically always a relatively uncontroversial session. This year, as folks know, uh, the evening of the election itself, Trump immediately declared without evidence that there was massive fraud and that uh, he was going to look into it and he he was the results weren't final, but he declared that even without the final results, he was the victor. Of course, he was not. Several days later, after additional ballots came in, the net news networks called the election for Joe Biden. And from there, it became very clear to everyone paying uh, attention to the actual facts that Joe Biden was the winner by a substantial margin in the national popular vote. Indeed, he'll end up by winning by about 7 million overall votes. Uh, over four percentage points, and that he was the victor clearly but relatively narrowly in the key swing states. Okay, that was the state of play, um, but we knew that there would be uh, a failure to concede, which as we record this, Adam, President Trump still has not conceded. And I should say there was a worry among some quarters that that itself would essentially lead to violence or uncertainty. And in particular, um, the Atlantic and, and writers there put forth a view that the concession is what really ends an election. Uh, that proved not to be true, Adam. I mean, I think really helpfully we found that the rule of law is what ends elections. Courts end elections, certifications end elections, secretaries of state, poll workers counting accurate votes end elections. And that is what has ended this election. So just to sort of take us, again, we we, uh, we, we did a 10-part breakdown into all the ways that elections could go wrong. Uh, we've written pieces uh, on our website, equalcitizens.us, and explained them in videos and elsewhere. And I think people know now that the many challenges that Trump has brought and his increasingly bizarre legal arguments by he and his allies have failed. And, and, and the headline here is that that's because we had institutions— that were not controllable by the president, that did their job. They performed, in some cases, really admirably. The poll workers, the counters, um, the folks who safeguarded the machines, the folks who observed the polls. There was little violence, little disruption. They performed, in some cases, minimally adequately. I would put in that category certain governors of red states like Georgia and Arizona, who failed to really come to the the uh, get the backs of the election workers in their states and make a full-throated defense of the people have spoken, and that is that, and stop doing this, President Trump, right? These are the same election machinery that elected you four years ago, that elected me, the Republican governor of the state, and that now narrowly has selected Joe Biden. They did not give that full-throated de defense, but nonetheless, they gave let's call them minimally adequate defenses. And that was enough, right? The Supreme Court has shown no interest 
in taking up any of the president's far-fetched theories, nor have the federal or state courts. So that's where we are. As we talk, Adam, the Electoral College has voted. Joe Biden has received 306 valid electoral votes of electors appointed by governors in their states, according to legal authority. Congress will count those votes on January 6th. Mitch McConnell has told every Republican not to object that Joe Biden is the president-elect and will become president on January 20th when President Trump's term expires. So that was, I think, the headline of 2020. Jason, can you take us through a little bit about what kind of arguments the Trump campaign was making? And is it true that it was mostly about whether or not states could certify the elections? I mean, the whole goal in some respects was to appoint uh, an alternative slate of electors. Right. Yeah. So so the president, well, yes and no, right? Because the thing about the president is he had, you know, the, the old legal saying that people know is, um, when the laws on your side argue the law, when you don't have the law, you know, argue, argue the facts, when you don't have the facts, pound the, your fist on the table and yell and scream. Right. And, and we, and maybe I even got the order between the facts and the law wrong, but we know that those are the two things that matter. And then the fist pounding comes and, and all we had was fist pounding here. So to say that there was a strategy or even that there were coherent legal claims is, is, and I'm not saying this like to make fun of them. I'm saying this as a, just evaluating the lawyering here. It, that is a generous statement. I didn't see a coherent legal strategy and I didn't see in some cases, even claims that I were sort of cognizable in, in any sense. Right. Um, and so, yes, Adam, a few of the lawsuits brought by either Trump and his allies asked for the remarkable relief, what they call in legal terms relief, that is the thing that the plaintiffs are asking a court to do. What they wanted the court to do was invalidate essentially an entire election. And then, as if that weren't unprecedented enough, send the election to the state legislatures to use what they claim is this inherent authority in the Constitution to appoint presidential electors. That was the relief requested in a few um, in a few cases. The judges who heard those cases pointed out that that was breathtaking and almost incomprehensible relief. And even judges appointed by President Trump or other Republicans said, this is akin to a coup, right? It is, you are asking the federal court not to undertake what they did in Bush v. Gore, undertake a very close analysis of how ballots were being counted and ensure that they were being counted fairly and uniformly. No, no, no. They were saying that based on blank, and I say blank here because, you know, various cases put different things, based on statistical analyses that were as stupid as I have ever seen statistical analyses filed in court, and we can talk about why, based on evidence of fraud that was withdrawn or unreliable or specifically found as not credible by trial judges, uh, you know, based on those types of facts, we basically should say that this election we had on November 3rd wasn't a real election. And, and, and so, and then it should go to the state legislatures and the state legislatures should do what? They should appoint their friends to be electors and, and appoint them for Trump. I mean, that this is the kind of rank insanity that we saw and, and that got literally no traction, right? I mean, it's there are some outrageously conservative judges out there, Adam. And in the lead up to the election, we saw some decisions, which we can talk about on this episode, and especially in our award show, that, that were remarkable in how restrictive they read uh, legal and constitutional provisions 
relative to voting rights, even in the middle of a pandemic. Even those judges, Adam, didn't give one positive word to this theory of, of the president. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that we were all at ease during this process. I think there were always, um, you know, the little pits in our stomach uh, about when this would actually be over. But I, I think that the general consensus, at least among law professors and constitutional scholars, was that these cases were farcical. Um, now, that does bring up a point here, Jason, which is, you know, you wrote an op-ed for Newsweek calling for sanctions, on the lawyers who were participating in these uh, in these cases, do do you still think that there should be some sanctions here? I I, I do, um, and indeed, some folks have made bar complaints uh, to about about certain cases and about certain lawyers. I don't expect them to go very far, frankly. Um, I think bar associations are first of all they don't take their responsibility, in my view, seriously enough here to to police frivolous claims. Um, but they also are particularly worried about being seen as being overly political, and I, I understand that. But that said, I mean, the Texas case is a case in point, right? This is the one that the president held his hat on and told the Supreme Court to have courage in here. It was a case brought by the Attorney General of Texas against four other states to claim that Texas as a state has been injured by Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Georgia, and um, and Michigan taking certain steps before the pandemic, mild and moderate steps, fully authorized by law to accommodate the pandemic, which, by the way, so too did Texas, though they didn't really mention that in their briefing, that somehow that infringed the rights of Texas as a state to have its vote count in the Electoral College. It was an absurd theory that was laughed out of the Supreme Court very quickly by all nine of the justices. It was noteworthy, Adam, that that lawsuit did not bear the signature, did not bear the signature or the name of Texas's appointed Supreme Court lawyer, right? Texas, as many states do, have a position called the Solicitor General. The Solicitor General is the chief appellate lawyer, usually the smartest, wonkiest, best constitutional lawyer in the state. There's a man named Kyle Hawkins who holds that position in Texas, and Texas has had fights in the Supreme Court, Adam. He's been a regular player. He's been very good. Um, His name was conspicuously absent as was the names of all of his staff. So the only people who were even willing to put their name on this insane legal brief were the attorney general and uh, this private lawyer who apparently took the case to the AG named Larry Joseph. Well, if even your Republican conservative, you know, political appointee is not willing to put your name on that drivel, then something is amiss. Right. That was a political document. That was a press release. That wasn't a real case. And, and, and I do think that folks should face consequences for that. Right. So what, one more practical question and then we can move on from the Electoral College. But so what does happen if a member of the House and Senate contest the Electoral College vote on January 6th? Um, there, are, there is some talk, you know, and there are a couple members of the House uh, and, and potentially a couple of senators who might go against uh, Mitch McConnell's request that nobody contest those votes. But what, what then happens, Jason? And is it something that we should be worried about or is it a whole lot of nothing? Don't worry, but something might happen in the sense that it will delay. And the reason is that what the law says is when a state's electoral votes are read, if the presiding officer of the Senate, who will be Mike Pence, um, receives a written objection from at least one member of the House and and the and is key, not or and at least one member of the Senate, 
then the Houses immediately adjourn separately and debate the issue for up to two hours and then take a vote about whether to accept or reject that electoral vote slate. It seems very likely that at least one member of the House will file written objections to slates in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Georgia. That's Mo Brooks of Alabama, who's on the record as stating he'll do that. I believe he'll be joined by several other people. Um, There is, of course, no chance that the Democratic-controlled House will support that objection, or even because there's enough moderate Republicans and enough thoughtful people that that they would reject that uh, if it gets to uh, debate. The question with regard to whether it will get to debate is whether any objection will be lodged in the Senate. It seems Mitch McConnell has said he is discouraging senators. Many senators have said they recognize that Joe Biden is the president-elect. So even though the Republicans technically control the Senate, the objection will surely lose in that chamber. The question is whether we will have the show and the shenanigan of a formal written objection. Uh, The three main candidates um, that people thought would be the most likely senators to take this ridiculous step are uh, Senator Rand Paul, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, and Ted Cruz. Uh, It seems like there have been some hints from Cruz and Johnson that while they are going to sort of continue to toe the line that there was some fraud, there was something was amiss, they know that it's pointless and they're not going to play that charade. Rand Paul seems to be the one who is on the fence right now. We'll see where the politics are on January 6th. We'll see what whether people want to... I mean, it's it's silly. The, and the last time this happened, Adam, I should, this is a long answer, I know. But the last, and indeed the only time this has really happened in the modern era, when a senator and a House member lodged an objection to an entire slate of electoral votes was sadly 2004, when John Kerry narrowly lost the election to George W. Bush. If he had won in Ohio, Kerry, he would have won the election, even though he lost the popular vote. Um, The election in Ohio was relatively close. Uh, Barbara Boxer joined a House objection, really without evidence, but Barbara Boxer did make a written objection to the Ohio electoral slate for George W. Bush that required the Senate to go retire and the House and go vote. And the ultimate Senate vote was 74 to 1 to uh, uphold the vote in Ohio. It was an embarrassing spectacle then. I think it will probably be an embarrassing spectacle today. I do expect more than one vote. I will say there's enough sycophantic support of the president to get more than one single vote um, if, say, Johnson or Cruz or Paul objects. I I do think there'd be some handful of of senators who just, well, at that point, we're debating it. We're going to lose anyway. Let's just show President Trump how much we love him. Um, But it would still be a national embarrassment. So I hope it doesn't happen. Right. And I guess, actually, I I, apologize here because I want to ask one more follow up, which is. When it's all said and done, are you happy that we brought the claim about faithless electors or the Hamilton electors? I am. I am. So just to remind the listeners, you know, we had a case that was percolating for several years in the lower courts and that ultimately got a hearing in the Supreme Court this spring and a decision this summer about whether presidential electors can be tied to vote for specific candidates and people. And uh, yes, I I am glad we brought that for two reasons. The the first is, you know, even though we lost, we thought at the time that the best reading of the Constitution was that presidential electors needed to have freedom, at least in certain cases, to vote for whomever they please. I think that, that, A, highlighting the way that the Electoral College worked forced the parties to take it seriously 
And for the first time in a long time, when we needed it, we had a very orderly vote of the electors. There were no faithless electors. They uh, Everything really went off to a T, and, and I hope that we helped that process. And the second is, and we, we even our clients recognize this, right? As much as we, we thought we were right as a matter of constitutional law, really what we wanted was to settle the question. And goodness knows the amount of uh, havoc that Trump has caused relying on areas of uncertainty, like legislative appointment of electors, which is sort of undecided in some narrow respect by the court. He's gotten a lot of play out of that. And so we took a, one area of uncertainty off the table. And, and I'm pleased by that. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I personally know that, you know, I, I was honored to be a part of the team. And, and I think that we did help uh, close off one potential, even though it would have been a long shot avenue to create more chaos in this already chaotic post-election period. So that's, right. um, that's, that's something looking back, I, I feel very good that we did at Equal Citizens this year. Um, so Jason, what do you think the relations of the Republican Party pushing our presidential election system this year to the brink? Will be what? What do you think that the impact of these, you know, false but widespread claims of that there was voter fraud and election stealing, and also just the the ramifications of one political party playing constitutional hardball with the back end of the electoral college? Something that you know we've had for a very long time, but it, it's just not something that, because of the norms that we followed, that it's ever really been. A question that that people haven't really been pushing the system to the extreme like this year. What do you think the ramifications will be? Well, TBD, Adam. This is, and I know you're asking me a question about the future, and so TBD is sort of always the answer, and 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 that's a cop out. But but I mean it in a really, uh, I I mean it in a really deep way, right? Because. I, I don't know that we've ever seen something like this, where there was so much storm und drang, as the Germans say, right? So much sound and fury. But will it signify nothing to get a little poetic, or, or will it really be meaningful? And the reason that's so unclear is twofold, right? One is, so much of it is related to Trump's particular personality and celebrity, right? These are not real claims. Yes, the Republican Party, as we've talked about, has been engaged in an, in an assault on certain aspects of our democracy. But they have not used the rhetoric that President Trump has, and they have not fundamentally tried to undermine the accuracy and integrity of the electoral system. And indeed, on some specific issues, the Republican Party has been at best agnostic or even pro, such as mail-in voting, Right. Um, and, and, and Trump has completely flipped that. So when he mercifully leaves office and, and, and loses the bully pulpit, I think we don't know what will happen because we have rarely seen a response that is this tied to a particular person and a particular personality. Right. I could have predicted the trend in the early 2000s when the Republican Party, Adam, started engaging in. Um, you know, a serious effort to build up gerrymandering, started engaging in a serious effort to build up voter ID that was not tied to one person. And that continued. They continued past the administration of George W. Bush. They continued through Republican governors and through Republican politicians and Republican senators and Republican state legislatures and ALEC and the whole Republican apparatus, right? This is not riddled through with the Republican apparatus. You know, the, the traditional sort of bulwarks of Republican thought 
the Republican think tanks, Republican governors, Alec, the Koch brothers and their network, Karl Rove and his network, they are not really invested in this narrative of a fraudulent election. So I don't know what it means when really one and only one person is pushing this line. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really difficult because on one hand, you have Trump that's kind of masked off, uh, uh, kind of getting rid of democracy or the Democratic, you know, or at least undermining the Democratic process altogether. You have a hand Republican senators and House members who are also engaging in that very explicitly anti-Democratic rhetoric. And then you also have a big part of the Republican Party who is largely silent. I mean, you think of like Mike Pence, who has made some terrible statements about it, but has taken a lot of mysterious trips uh, away and hasn't really been, you know, uh, using his bully pulpit. Um, so, you know, it, it, I agree with you. It's very difficult to, to say, um, but it, it's certainly very scary that we're even kind of staring into this abyss of, of uh, explicitly anti-democratic rhetoric, um, kind of guising, uh, undermining democracy as the, the preservation of a, of a republic. It's, it's, it's a level of doublespeak that um, it really hits hard for, for those of us who are fighting for uh, the expansion of the democratic process. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It, it does somehow sit like as a personal you know, stitch in my craw or something like that. I mean, it's, it, it, it just check it. I occasionally deign to just go to twitter.com slash real Donald Trump just to like see what he's saying and what he's doing. And it's really quite insane, right? I mean, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We have huge problems. We're trying to get a vaccine out. And like by far, most of what he does every day is just post insane things that are blatantly not true that are flagged by Twitter as being not true about the election, right? And and things that, that, and that's why I say I don't know the long-term rhetoric because, you know, do people even buy this, Adam? I, I don't know how many Trump supporters you've talked to, but he says things like in the last several days, and indeed since the election, one of his lines, one of his lines have been, we received 75 million votes, the most by an incumbent president in history. 75 million votes, right? So what? It must be a fraud, right? I mean, at, indeed, yesterday he tweeted, I got 60, you know, 3 million votes in 2016 and 75 million. My vote went up and yet I lost, right? And yet Obama's vote total went down from 2008 to 2012 and he won. So I, I like th that logic is so poor, right? It's sort of like an athlete. It's, it's sort of like baseball team saying, wait a second, I scored four runs and I won in yesterday's game. I scored six runs today. I must have won, right? Like any school child knows whether you won or lost has to do with your score and the other person's score, right? So the reason that logic doesn't hold in the baseball analogy is you could have won four to three yesterday and you lost 10 to six today, right? That That is just clear. So, but but does anybody think, Adam, that when he says, I must have won because I reached this magic number of votes and ignore how many votes the other guy got, right? Just ignore that. It's like saying, ignore how many runs the other team scored. I got six. I must have won. What, 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 like, what, is, what, what does that mean? What, what does that do to people? Is it serious enough to last or is it a joke? I tend to think it's a joke. Maybe I'm too generous to him and his supporters, but... And by joke, I don't mean a funny ha-ha joke. I mean, it's just something you say 
to basically signal we're on this team. We're on team Trump, right? I don't need logic. I don't need what we just say we won. We're winners. We won. I like winning. Here's something that sounds like a number. Here's you, you know what I mean? But but maybe to, to, to see if you have a, a different view. I mean, do you have a different view? I I don't know because I mean, on the one hand, I think it's it it's you know the lawsuits were so poorly argued. They haven't found any fraud. You know that the the entire argument has been debunked just by fact. Um, but we also know, you know, you look at the public polling about vote by mail. Like vote by mail was relatively uncontroversial. Uh, enjoyed support of of both parties. Uh, we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, the vast majority of Americans wanted to expand vote by mail. And it took Trump four months of just railing against vote by mail and having, you know, his the, the media circuit uh, echoing it. And all of a sudden you see this historic split in public opinion along partisan lines. And then you also see a historic split in terms of how people voted. Um, you know, Republicans voted in person and Democrats voted by mail. Um, and so it does show that that this kind of partisan queuing, this this when a party leader is is kind of attacking uh, a certain mode of voting or a certain democracy reform, it does run the risk of breaking the one thing that reformers, the democracy reformers that we have to our benefit, which is that Americans of all political stripes want a more fair and just democracy. Um, and so that's what I've been struggling with a lot is that we know that we have widespread support on all of these issues to make our democracy function better, but what Trump did show is that it, maybe it's temporary. And, and if that's the case, that's the best news. Um, but he did show that party leaders can really hurt public support for democracy reforms. And if that's a long-term you know, uh, effect, that's dangerous. Um, if it's really tied to just Trump and now you know, moving forward, if, if Trump kind of goes away and you know, um, maybe the Republicans tone down this anti-democratic rhetoric, could support for vote by mail increase again and reach that equilibrium of kind of, you know, both sides are, are grassroots level supporters on both sides support vote by mail or, you know, say automatic voter registration and all these issues. Then I think that we have absolutely every chance to, to kind of fix our democracy and get a really nice cross-partisan reform movement uh, continuing to, to, to build. Um, but that, that's just something that's been on my mind, Jason, is just like, what, what are the effects, at least for our work, uh, and trying to heal this democracy and take it to a place where it's never been uh, in the context of a party leader just so wildly de delegitimizing, you know, not just a, a reform, but a, but a way of voting, a longstanding way of voting for, you know, over 100 years. This isn't new. Vote by mail is not new. But the fact that that, that partisan split appeared after four months of, of Trump's barrage is, is I haven't been able to shake the, again, that pit in my stomach that it doesn't bode well necessarily for um, the future of democracy. But yeah, though, 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 remember that things can turn relatively quickly because people need very, very little excuse to change their mind and believe they're still being consistent. Right. We, we could just say, Oh, the pandemic's over and voting by mail was just different in the pandemic and it's fine. You know what I mean? Trump go and it's fine. And and now everything's normal. Or yeah, okay, you know, we could say we we got what we wanted in terms of signature verification and and now because candidly, it's it's the all the studies show it's in the long-term interest of both parties, which is why both parties largely supported it. It's in the long-term interest of both parties to give people more options for voting because the easier it is for their people to vote 
the more they will vote. That is just a supply-demand issue. And, you know, all the studies show that. So, you know, that's the, the like, that's the, that, that's the fundamental problem is that there will be Republican leaders in key places who want to support vote by mail. Um, and they will only need the barest of excuses, I think, to turn it around once again. And we'll see if they can. Yeah, and I think that's an optimistic take, and I think that I, I probably agree with that. Um, that. I'm just saying that that the partisan queuing effect of someone like Trump is just I haven't been able to shake that in the past in the past couple of months. But yeah, sure. I, I agree. Um, okay, so so let's let's move through a couple more questions in, in terms of thinking about the the last uh, 12 months, but really the last nine months since the pandemic started. Um, how well do you think that our our elections held? Um, during the pandemic, did we successfully hold a general election during a pandemic um, when all, when it's all said and done? I mean, I'm thinking back to you know some of the conversations we had in in March and April and May on this podcast. I mean, I'm thinking about with Professor Richard Hassan. I'm thinking about um, you know the many episodes we, we we did. You know, investigating what different states are doing. I think of the the episode I, I did with Stephen Wolf of the Daily Coast. Um, what do you think, Jason? Now, now that we're kind of on the other side of the election, did states do enough? Sure, sure, I, I sure, and they didn't get a lot of bailout funding, and you know, they, by all accounts, including the Trump administration's security people itself, it was a secure election. It was a remarkably high turnout election, probably in part because of all the voting options, and in part because of just the fact that we're in a pandemic and so politics are on people's mind and, and, you know, they were more able to vote in a variety of ways, including in person, right? Where there's less in-person work, it's easier to vote in person. Um, and uh, so I, I think you'd have to to give the overall system close to an A in terms of accuracy and administration with the one asterisk being the key swing states of Michigan and Pennsylvania, especially Wisconsin a little bit, you know, not permitting their vote counters to count mail ballots before Election Day itself, which led to this massive delay, which was totally predictable, Adam. We talked about it before in our presidential election series in the episode about the red shift and or, or the blue shift and the red wave. We talked about it months ago. It was absolutely unjustifiable. It was done only to sow chaos and for no good reason. It was willful. I mean, the, yeah. especially in Pennsylvania, the Republicans there, it was a willful decision not to allow for, for pre-processing, which allowed for this chaos. So yeah, that's right. I, I, I definitely agree with that. But um, so, you, so you'd give it an A? I, I'd give it I'd give it an A other than that. I mean, there were clearly there, there were some problems, but I'm giving it an A measured by the degree of difficulty. And I, I think that American democracy really came through quite well. Right. I, I, I think I would agree with that. Um, you know, at, at worst, maybe an A minus. But again, we did have, what, the highest voter turnout in, in almost a century. Um, you know, just remarkable turnout across the country. And um, yeah, there weren't any major, major problems on Election Day. I mean, I remember, you know, you and I talked on Election Day, we were texting back and forth. And I think that we both were worried that we'd see extremely long lines, you know, like we did in April with the, the Wisconsin primary election, that was just an utter disaster. Uh, but we didn't see that. And so that is, you know, cause for celebrate for celebrating that, you know, our democracy for all of its flaws was able to survive in the midst of the worst pandemic 
certainly in our lifestyle lifetimes, but in, in almost a century, more than a century. Yeah. Um, so, so that does speak to a certain level of resilience that not only did we avoid the kind of post-election, you know, for lack of a better expression, uh, a coup, uh, uh, undermining of, of the very democratic process uh, through the state legislatures or through the Supreme Court or any federal court or state court. But we also were actually able to hold an election that people were able to vote early, vote by mail or in person and go to the poll place, polling place on election day, have their ballots counted with, and, and I haven't seen anything to suggest otherwise, but with certainly less rejections on the vote by mail than I think I certainly was worried about. Yeah. Um, there, there wasn't yeah, mass right. disenfranchisement right. on the back end that you send it, send in your mail, uh, your, your mail and ballot, and then they reject it because of some reason. It, it, I haven't seen any evidence yet to suggest, I mean, there's, there's always is, and it's always disproportionately young people and people of color. So the system's not perfect. It's, it's, it has so much room to be improved because there are people who were certainly disenfranchised this election cycle because of this. But all that being said, it, it was not the disaster in any respect. And in fact, people did turn out and voted and had their votes counted. And, and I agree, as bad as this year has been, Jason, that is a real reason to celebrate. Yeah, agreed, so agreed. That poses two questions then. The first one doesn't have an answer, but the second one leads into something we're going to be doing at Equal Citizens uh, in 2021. The first question that this successful election poses is, so what are states going to do now? What is a state like Massachusetts, which expanded vote by mail, but only through 2020, going to do moving forward? Are these states going to keep these expanded vote by mail laws? The answer should be yes, because it was remarkable successful across the board and led to higher turnout. But whether or not they will is an open question. And it's something that reformers will be facing in the states across the country to try and keep those gains made. Because as we talked about before the election, once people experience voting by mail for the first time, they like it and they'll likely want to keep it. I haven't seen any any polls necessarily to validate that, but certainly from my, uh, my conversations with reformers across the country, I think back to the podcast pre-pandemic with Phil Kiesling about vote by mail, talk about oppression interview looking back. But you know what he said is that voters overwhelmingly, once they experience vote by mail, want to keep it. So that's something to watch moving forward. How do states uh, decide or you know decide to keep it or not keep it? Um, but the second question is, okay, so despite everything, there's definitely room for improvement. There's room for standardizing election law. There's room for expanding um, uh, you know, some of these pro-voter laws across the country. And the best way to do that is certainly on the national level. We know, and we've talked about it many times, that there's this amazing omnibus legislation, H.R. 1, introduced by the House Democrats. It was passed in um, the spring of 2019. Uh, this omnibus amazing package it was going to, or Joe Biden has said that it, 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 democracy reform wants, to, he wants it to be a top priority for him and for his administration. And the House Democrats have already said that their first act will in the 2021 session be to pass HR1 again to, to, to address democracy reform. But we know the biggest roadblock to reform is Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senator from Kentucky, who is the majority leader of the Senate. And he's called HR1 a capital D, Democratic power grab, and has said in no way, shape, or form is he going to bring it up for a vote. And it looks now that the Senate could remain in the Republican control, meaning Mitch McConnell will still be the Senate Majority Leader. But, and there's a big but here, Jason, 
there are still two races outstanding, both in Georgia, that will ultimately decide who controls the Senate. And so at Equal Citizens, we're making a relatively unprecedented decision to get involved uh, in, in that race because at its core, the fate of our democracy in some respects hangs in the balance. So Jason, I want to turn it over to you. Why are we getting involved in these Georgia runoffs? What are the stakes? What are we doing about it? Yeah. So, you know, the stakes are, as you laid out really nicely, Adam, just simple. It, it's whether Mitch McConnell stays as the Senate Majority Leader. And that is a straight line to whether the U.S. Senate gets an up or down vote on legislation addressing many of the core problems with our democracy, including a bill that will end gerrymandering, make voter registration easier, uh, close ethical loopholes and lobbyist loopholes, and much more. And the and and including likely, although we don't know what this version will 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 have, and this is a narrower Democratic majority, but likely and hopefully have at least some pilot program for public financing of campaigns, which is something very important to us and very important to many people to reduce the uh, influence of big donors and big money donors on our political system. So those are key components of HR one or of any related bill that comes out of the House, and the stakes are very simple: Will that get an up or down vote or not? All we're asking is for an up or down vote. I think it's very popular. Those reforms are very popular. I think those reforms will get the support of some Republican senators, um, the Lisa Murkowski's of the world, the Mitt Romney's of the world, again, depending on what comes out of the House. But I think broadly speaking, people are of both parties do recognize that, you know, at its extremes, I hope gerrymandering is a problem, right? Republicans have recognized this in the past. They do recognize that people want a cleaner government that is less, uh, that has fewer lobbying loopholes and ethical loopholes and the like, uh, and that we need a little more money to safeguard our democracy and modernize the system and, and like the things that HR1 does. So I think it could even get a couple of Republican votes. Even if it can't, there are there would be enough Democratic votes to pass it. Uh, a moderate bill, assuming that Mitch McConnell lets it come up, or assuming that the uh, whoever is controlling the Senate lets it come up for a vote, and that is either going to be most likely Chuck Schumer or most likely Mitch McConnell, and that itself, Adam, comes down to voters in one state and one state only, and that is Georgia. Because if the Democrats, again, we don't like to support or oppose political candidates. We're not doing this to support or oppose one political party. We're doing this to support or oppose one bill. That is a bill that will improve our democracy and that can only go through if Mitch McConnell is not the majority leader. Right. I think that's absolutely right. And so just to be very clear to our listeners, right now, the Senate is 50-48 in Republican hands. So there are 50 Republican senators and 48 Democratic senators. With Two of those are, are independents, uh, but caucus with the Democrats. Um, and ultimately, these two races, and it, it's by quirk. Usually there aren't two senators from the same state in one election cycle, but it's a it's this one normally scheduled election and there's one special election for a senator. Um and, you know, the, the, as you said, Jason, the fate of our democracy does kind of rest in the balance here because Mitch McConnell, even if there's a Lisa Murkowski or a Mitt Romney or a Republican who might support maybe maybe a pared down version of what was introduced in the House, Mitch McConnell will not bring it up. He's made it very clear. It's a matter of whether or not they bring up that vote. And the only way that is going to be done is if Mitch McConnell is not the Senate Majority Leader. That's right. Therefore, it has to be um, th these two seats. That's right. That's right. Um, 
And so, so I, I think you framed it really nicely. And so we created a website, Jason, called um, Give Joe a Chance. It's givejoeachance.us. Uh, and there are a couple ways for you, the listener, to join the campaign. Um, Jason, do you want to you want to name some of them? Why, why don't you walk through, Adam? You're you're our campaign's manager. I, I want to leave this to you. Sure. Okay. I, I, I will take that up. So there are a couple ways that you can participate here. Um, you know, one, you know, one of the most important ways to join the campaign is there's a function to reach out to your Facebook friends who may live in Georgia. Um, this isn't an endorsement of Facebook, but we know that people use Facebook. And we also know that one of the most successful ways uh, to get people to vote and to convince people to vote and, uh, is to reach out to them one-on-one and to people you already know. And so if you have people in Georgia that maybe are not aware that there's a Senate runoff going on or two Senate runoffs, uh, we give you the ability to check your friend list. Um, there's also a place for you to record a remix of a song, the descriptions in the, in, on the website that we hope to release that will help uh, spread the word about the runoff and, and maybe get some media attention. And we also link to some of the organizations on the ground doing the work to turn out voters. Because I will say, Jason, that our goal here is not to run a campaign for a Senate. That's not our wheelhouse, but we wanted to create no. a, a, a landing page for those who are interested or might be convinced on democracy reform to then get plugged in to help join the effort because we're not turning out voters. We're not uh, the campaign operatives or at least campaign operatives in the style of, of running a political campaign, an advocacy campaign, absolutely. Um, but we also want to just acknowledge that we're not you know, in the business of, of superseding the work that folks like uh, um, Fair Fight Georgia and, and others are doing. So we also provide links there uh, for other things you can do with groups on the ground. But really what we see is this is a landing page where you can participate, reach out to your contacts in Georgia and um, you know, just try and participate and spread the word as much as possible. So if you're interested in joining the campaign, it's all on our social platforms on Twitter or Facebook, but you can also just go to givejoeachance.us. And really the message is just give Joe Biden a chance. He, he can't enact his agenda most prominently on democracy reform unless the Senate flips. It's just as simple as that. And, uh, and so we hope this campaign will be useful. And we recognize, Jason, this is very much outside of our normal wheelhouse. We really don't like doing partisan things like this. Uh, but Jason, as you said, it's not about partisanship. It's really just about one bill. It's really about get, making sure that we can go into this next decade without gerrymandering dominating. Because without this, Jason, gerrymandering is going to get worse in the next decade. Yeah, that's right. So it's really give give Joe a chance so that we give HR one a chance, I guess. It's, that's a really long domain name. So yeah, yeah, I don't I don't think that quite works as a domain right. name or, or right. a, a tagline, but that, that's essentially our goal here, Jason. Right. And so right. we hope you, the listener, uh, spreads the word, checks it out and 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 uh, you know we can move forward together on this. And of course, if you have any questions, you know, just shoot us an email at info at equalcitizens.us. You know, we're always we're always open to um, uh, critique or questions or, or ways that we can improve the website. Okay, so final thing, Jason, yes. before before we close is is just what what's the update on the our, our super PAC case in Alaska? Because we haven't talked about that in a while. You've been hard at work on the brief. And so I just wanted to give you an opportunity to update our listeners that, hey, this case is still going on and still has merit. Yeah. So speaking of money in politics, I mean, it would be a big moment if we passed H.R. 1 next year and got public financing of elections. But in the meantime, we brought a case several years ago in Alaska, one of our favorite states to litigate, um, uh, saying that the courts should interpret existing federal law 
to allow for at least some limits on contributions to super PACs. Not, we're not asking for Citizens United to be overturned. We're not asking for super PACs to be undone. But at very least, if states have existing limits on donations to them so that, you know, one person or one group can't put in millions and millions of dollars, um, uh, then, okay, that, you know, those can be enforced. And we uh, actually won that in a lower court, and it's been on appeal to the Alaska Supreme Court for a while now. Um, we did complete the briefing in that uh, this year, and the Alaska Supreme Court was going to hear our case as we record this. We're recording this on Thursday, December 17th, and uh, the argument was going to be today or this week, I should say, the Supreme Court postponed it and said they wanted more time to prepare, interestingly, which is fine with us. You know, they should take all the time they need. This is an important issue that we want them to study. So we should have a Zoom hearing, Adam, sometime in January, and we'll let our followers know, of course. Um, and, and we'll see. We'll make our case to a, a really interested uh, court. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great place to end. I mean, who knows what will happen, but it's a really good case, Jason. You've done phenomenal work preparing the case. Um, I mean, really, for our listeners, there's a lot of work on the litigation that you, you guys don't see, but uh, but Jason and, and Larry have really been really been working hard. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate all the work you're doing, Jason. Um, and I'm really excited for that argument. And fingers crossed there, because, you know, I will just say as, as a last thought about 2020, the, at least the, the general election, is there was an unprecedented amount of grassroots donations. Um, and candidates were able to raise a lot of money. But, but make no mistake that money in politics is just as pernicious as ever. Um, and it takes only certain kinds of candidates can raise that much money from the grassroots. Um, and uh, yeah, money in politics is just as much of a problem. And I'm going to be really excited to get the data about what the donor base looked like in 2020, because the small donor base may be more representative than it has been in the past. But I, I can almost assuredly promise you it's not fully representative of the American people, uh, especially during this pandemic. A lot of Americans did not have the ability to donate to a political campaign this year, even though they would have, which just makes public financing all the more important. Yeah. Um, so for our listeners, we'll keep you updated about this Alaska case that could potentially end super PACs. Um, but with that, Jason, any final thoughts before we close this episode? And again, uh, we'll be posting the part two of this episode where we will be giving out awards, uh, both good and bad for people in 2020. But before that, Jason, final thoughts? No, thanks for talking to uh, to me, Adam. Stay tuned for, for part two. That's my parting thought. All right, well, this has been another episode of Another Way. We'll see you next time.